Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Hope 2020 is treating you well so far. Made any progress on your resolutions yet? If one of your resolutions happens to be to write more horror fiction, well, we've got something in store just for you. Our amazing team of editors have cooked up another flash fiction contest for you to kick your writing resolution into high gear. We'll share more details with you later this month, but they've selected a diabolically dark image for inspiration that's sure to get your imagination running. The contest will run through the month of February, so stay tuned in the coming weeks for everything you need to know to get in on the action. And thank you to Simon156 for the stellar review on Apple Podcasts. It was an amazing way to cap off 2020. We really appreciate that you took the time to share your love of the show. If you'd like to help the show, like Simon, head over to Apple Podcasts and drop us a five-star rating or a review. It really does help us out. With the feasting and festivities of the holidays behind us, I think it's time to pack our things, grab some snacks, and head back to the highway to see what dark destinations we can discover. Leaving the province of Manitoba behind, we're plunging deep into the land of snow and ice, a section of the country that's practically synonymous 
with exploration and adventure, whose very name conjures images of rugged explorers, grizzled prospectors, and hopeful fortune seekers. The Canadian Territory of Yukon Yukon is a wild land, more unexplored and uninhabited than not, by humans anyway. It's a harsh but beautiful territory of dense evergreen forest and ragged ice-capped mountains, veined by raging rivers and towering glaciers. No surprise that it's the least populated of any region in Canada, boasting only one settlement large enough to be called a city. That city, though, is the largest in the north. Life in Whitehorse, Yukon, is a little different than most of us are used to, and not just because of the terrain or the climate. It's a land of extremes, where light and dark seem to be constantly at war. In the winter, days can be as short as five or six hours, while summertime can see upwards of 19 hours of sunshine in a day. Add in the ethereal dancing green ribbons of the aurora borealis overhead, and it's not hard to believe there's something almost supernatural in the air, like the veil between worlds is somehow thinner. And there's one place in the city of Whitehorse that veil seems very thin indeed. One of the oldest houses in town, a house known as the Captain Campbell House. Built sometime around 1907, the Captain Campbell House was originally a three-room log cabin. Owned first by the local postmaster, then by a pair of riverboat captains, one of which left it his name, and later by the city's first mayor. The house has seen several additions and renovations over the years, but over time, it's acquired more than just a few new rooms and coats of paint. It's gained some longer-term residents, too. Barbara Robertson and her husband moved into the home in 1965. It was beautifully furnished and well-kept. The previous owners had just moved to South Africa, so the house was ready to move in, with everything Barbara and her husband needed to start their growing family. When she first shared the exciting news of their home purchase with her friends, she didn't get the response she was expecting. Instead of sharing her enthusiasm, they seemed hesitant, almost nervous. You know about the house, right? They asked. You've heard the rumors. It's haunted, you know. But Barbara dismissed the tale with a wave of her hand. She'd grown up in the UK spent many years in Edinburgh, one of the most famously haunted cities in the world, and in all that time she'd never experienced anything that gave her even the slightest reason to believe ghosts were more than just the imagination running rampant in the middle of the night. That is, of course, until the family settled into their new home. In hindsight, she realized there was something about the room that she'd always found a little off-putting, something that made her uncomfortable and a little on edge. But when she gave birth to her first child, the spare room was the obvious place to make into the nursery. Some cute decorations, 
a bright coat of paint and some new drapes, a crib and change table. The room looked warm and cozy and comfortable, but it didn't feel that way. Still, there was something about it that gave Barbara the creeps. But her daughter didn't seem to mind, never kicked up a fuss, more seemed uncomfortable in the room. So, Barbara pushed the feeling down and ignored it. After her daughter woke from a nap one day, Barbara went into the room to change her diaper. The little girl seemed happy enough to see her mother, but also paid her unusually little attention. Barbara began following what was by now a fairly familiar routine. The baby was so quiet and cooperative, it made the diaper change so much easier. But it also set Barbara's motherly instincts on edge. The little girl was staring at her with such intensity and focus. Usually her attention was all over the place, fresh eyes still eagerly processing the world around her. But today, the baby's gaze seemed fixed on her mother. Or so Barbara thought. But when she reached for the talcum, and the baby's gaze remained fixed on the same spot rather than following her mother, Barbara realized with a sinking feeling that the girl was staring past her, over her shoulder. Ice trickled down Barbara's spine, and the hairs at the nape of her neck tingled as the baby smiled and let out a short giggle. She knew that smile, that laugh. It was the one her daughter made when they played peekaboo. A coincidence, surely. And then the baby giggled again. Barbara could almost feel it this time, could sense the weight of something behind her. So close, she imagined she could feel its breath on her neck. Summoning her courage, she spun to face the thing, to face an empty room. Silent and still, save for the gentle billow of the curtain covering the closet. No matter how much she hoped it would, the presence in the room didn't go away after that. She'd often catch her daughter staring over her shoulder, and that familiar feeling of dread of something close behind her would steal over her. The incidents did fade, though, as her daughter grew. But things took another terrifying turn after her second child was born. Somehow, waking in the dead of night to her baby's hysterical laugh was way more terrifying than a scream or cry could ever be, especially when it's followed by absolute silence. She lay in bed, eyes wide, staring at the ceiling trying to figure out if the sound had just been the lingering remnant of a particularly vivid dream. But then it came again, a loud, clear belly laugh from her infant son in the other room, then silence. She lay stiff, frozen in bed, her maternal instincts warring with bone-deep fear. But after a third burst of laughter, and a fourth, she finally managed to mobilize. 
she leapt out of bed and stomped toward the bedroom, making a point of slapping her feet as loudly and purposefully on the hardwood as possible, hoping to scare whatever could be in there with her son. She flung the door open and stopped. Her son stood at the edge of his crib, one tiny hand gripping the wooden bars, the other outstretched, pointing. If he noticed her, he didn't pay any attention. His gaze, like his sister's years before, was fixed on the yawning, dark mouth of the closet, where the curtains billowed slightly without any hint of help from a breeze. What suddenly struck Barbara was the familiarity of it all, not just because of the haunting feeling she'd had before with her daughter, but because of the laughter and the way her son bent and bobbed his tiny legs in excitement. His response was exactly what he would do when the two played peekaboo, right down to the expectant look on his face as he stared, waiting for whoever, or whatever, was behind the curtain to pop out with a boo. Her fear suddenly gave way to fury. She strode to the closet and flung back the curtain before she could lose her nerve. But of course, all that greeted her were boxes and coat hangers. By that point, Barbara had had enough. They moved the crib into another room and turned that one into a playroom. But still, it was somewhere that even the kids now would avoid. Her daughter would complain that she didn't feel comfortable in there, that she felt like she was always being watched, and the children even mentioned seeing a tall man emerge from the bedroom wall. When she finally asked around town, the consensus seemed that the ghost must be that of a young boy who drowned on the property in the 1940s. But that didn't match Barbara's experiences. Both her son and daughter seemed to stare into a place that was much too tall for a young boy. And the presence felt more dominant, like a full-grown man. The experience of another, later guest in the house seemed to suggest that as well. That, while there was likely the spirit of a boy in the home, there was something else, too. Something larger. A while after Barbara and her family moved out, the house was rented to a tourist for several days. After a long day of sightseeing, the man had settled down into bed. It was quiet, calm, and peaceful in the house, and he was on the verge of drifting off to sleep when he felt a tiny hand reach up from the edge of the bed and tap him insistently on the shoulder. Understandably surprised, he shot up in bed, just in time to see a tall figure that had been looming over the foot of his bed turn around and walk out of the bedroom. The tap didn't seem like it had come from the figure. It was too small and in the wrong place, and the presence the figure left in its wake was too heavy and oppressive. Deep inside, the tourist felt the tapping had been a warning, a wake-up call to protect him from whatever may have taken an unhealthy interest in him while he dozed. 
needless to say, after that experience, he chose to spend the rest of the night sleeping on the lawn. No one lives in Captain Campbell House, the last I was able to find. The current owner simply uses it for storage. But even full of boxes and old furniture, that building is anything but uninhabited. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes from Tabitha Lord. Tabitha's Horizon Science Fiction series has received several independent book awards, including the Writer's Digest Grand Prize in 2016. In addition to writing novels and short fiction, Tabitha is a partner and senior writer for Book Club Babble and managing editor of Inkit Writer's Blog. She lives in Rhode Island with her husband, four kids, and lovable fur babies. Children of the Night, join me for Tabitha Lord's Lady in Blue, a Tales to Terrify original. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Patience Pittman, July 1st, 1916 My father has finally given his permission to clear the land and begin rebuilding, some ten years after that dreadful night. We are each other's only living relatives, 
and I believe he wishes for assurance that I will be well situated after his passing. His health is failing, and in truth he has been but a shadow of himself. Most recently I have seen his essence floating away, like the white fluff of a dandelion in summertime. My father has hired on builders, but he has left the arrangement of details and design to me. I admit to enthusiasm at the prospect of country living. Our apartment in Boston, while well-appointed, is dreadfully hot in the summertime and dreadfully cold in the winter. And being so near to the harbor, it is also quite noisy. I yearn for birdsong to awaken me in the morning, rather than the shouts of the fishmongers, bakers, and carousing sailors returning to their ships. Aunt Clara will accompany me today, as she fears the memory of the place will cause me distress. It may. She arrives just after nine o'clock in the morning, and we depart in a hired carriage. While not my aunt by blood, Clara is the midwife who helped me into the world. Her tiny frame and delicate features disguise her inner fortitude. Streaks of silver now decorate her chestnut mane, tied efficiently into a network of braids, making her age difficult to determine. I have indelicately asked her about it in the past. My query is always returned with a pat on the hand and an indulgent smile. As we leave the city street for the less-traveled country lane, the carriage jostles us about. My stomach becomes queasy as we draw nearer to the property. The memories I have from our time living here are vague and disjointed. It seems as though they lie just beneath the surface of a murky pond, and if the water would only settle, I would see them clearly. I feel the scrutiny of Aunt Clara's gaze and give her a small smile. The carriage stops. Madam, the way is nearly impassable, our driver says, leaning around. That's quite all right, Clara answers. We'll walk from here. Take yourself off for some cold ale in town and we shall see you back around noontime. The driver helps us out of the carriage, tips his hat and departs. Clara and I survey the winding driveway to the property. Large maple trees shade us as we walk the shallow incline to the clearing. Sweat trickles between my shoulder blades from the already intense heat, and suddenly we are there. The only thing remaining from the house of my birth is the stone fireplace. Leafy debris and moss now cover charred timber. Tiny saplings opportunistically take root, their branches reaching for the sun. To the side of the property, I see the well, and something tugs at my consciousness. Behind that, the pine forest whispers. I stand frozen in my hazy memories. Clara reaches for my hand, squeezing. I try to picture the house as it was, but I can't quite see it. Only a shadowy outline where the pitched roof met the upper-story windows. But there is something there. I feel it the way I sometimes feel the dead lingering about 
after their bodies have given way. I hear it, the way I sometimes hear their voices in the shadows. I'm drawn involuntarily toward the house, my body moving of its own volition, my feet crunch on brittle wood and dead leaves. Ash, long undisturbed, puffs into a cloud and then settles back to rest. I run my hands over the fireplace, its stones hot beneath the summer sun. My hands tingle, sending a shiver up my spine, and I feel pulled toward the ground. Kneeling, I brush the top layer of dirt off the hearth. One of the large, thin stones loosens at my touch. When I remove it, a leather-bound book sits silently in the protected cavity of rock. With trembling hands I lift it, and the scent of lilacs, my mother's favorite, wafts to my nose. I'm lost in a memory of cutting the mauve flowers and arranging them artfully in a vase to decorate our dining table. My mother smiles her approval, her shadow just over my shoulder. When I look up, the lilac tree sits at the edge of our yard. Only green leaves now, the flowers pass their season. Gingerly, I open the book's cover, and two delicate photographs flutter to the ground. The first is a chubby baby, dressed in a white gown, propped against bulging pillows to keep her from toppling over. I turn the picture over, and in my mother's tidy handwriting I read, Patience Faith Pittman, age three months. The other photograph has no information on the back, but I recognize my parents, or a younger version at least. Mama, I whisper. The lilac scent grows stronger. Clara appears at my side, her hand on my shoulder. I hand her the photographs and turn my attention to the book. It is a journal, my mother's. I glance at the date, December 21st, 1899, exactly six months before my birth. Her elegant script fills the page beneath, and I yearn to consume her words as if they are the sweetest of delicacies. Clara's voice startles me. Come, child, let us move to the shade. She knows I must read it now and fill in the missing pieces of my childhood, those shadows haunting my dreams. My mother is speaking to me through these pages, and I must hear what she is telling me. The Journal of Addison Faith Pittman, nay Williams, December 21st, 1899 I can feel the child quickening. I dare not tell Samuel yet, but I am filled with hope and awe. He has tried to hide his disappointment over our losses, to spare me his pain, knowing mine was so great. But I have loved my husband for over a decade, and I understand him well. Hours spent at his tiny cramped office, calculating figures, making deals, avoiding our apartment, empty of a baby's cry a child's laughter. He asks after my health, and the note of anticipation in his voice is painful to hear. 
I carried our last baby to term, felt his tiny body stirring inside mine, cherishing the idea that we would name him Samuel after his father and his father's father. But when he was born, a tiny blue form curled in on itself. He left us both cold with despair. This child feels different, alive in a way that transcends my own ability to nourish and care for it. As if in agreement with my assessment, she somersaults in my womb. I smile and sing her a lullaby. April 20th, 1900 Samuel has purchased us a home in the country. He believes that the fresh air will be healthy for our child and me. I must agree, the briny smell permeating the harbor town makes me ill, and the constant noise drains me. We took a ride out to the property today to look around before Samuel hired on men for repairs and such. It is a stunning piece of land. Although it is too early in the season for flowering trees, I recognized lilac and dogwood and even a few apple trees along the back. A large area has already been cleared for a kitchen garden, and the crocuses are poking their colorful heads out of the mud. How I love the smell of pines in early spring! The structure itself is a beautiful old farmhouse with a large central fireplace and a welcoming front porch. I imagine rocking our child in a swing as the summer days cool to autumn. Only one odd thing vexes me, and I dare not mention it to Samuel. We do not speak of my strange second sight, except when I must forewarn him of something dire, and even then I call it my women's intuition. In truth, that isn't much of a stretch— as all the women of my family have had the sight in some form or another. Today's occurrence took place at the well. When I peered into its depths, such a feeling of cold came over me that I began to shiver uncontrollably. It was as if the temperature had dropped a dozen or more degrees, when in fact the day was quite warm. I could see my breath curling into wisps of steam. The incident passed as quickly as it began, and I experienced nothing further out of sorts. But I will tell Clara, and perhaps she can accompany me early next week to perform a cleansing ritual. June 21st, 1900 it is with great joy that I now look upon the peaceful sleeping face of my daughter. She was born just after the clock struck midnight to usher in the longest day of the year. Her perfect fingers curl around mine, and tufts of dark hair frame her porcelain skin and rosy cheeks. She is the picture of health. All the heartache of the past years. All the despair have been swept clean away. Samuel tiptoes into the room and peers into the cradle every few minutes or so, as if he too can't believe she is real. Clara will stay with us for several more days, tending to me, 
and taking on the household chores until I am strong enough to do them myself. Her presence is a calm comfort, and she herself like a sister to me. November 1st, 1901 Last night, when the veil between the living and dead was at its thinnest, Clara and I honored our familial dead. We who still practice the old ways do so mostly in secret. I do not feel we disrespect the church with our candles and chanting. Rather, I believe the practices of the church are simply another chapter in the book of human faith. But new words do not make the old ones any less wise. Therefore, on the night of Sowen, or All Hallows' Eve, as the church prefers, we mixed the herbs and the oils and set the table with empty places. Samuel remained at work in town, an unspoken agreement between us, but Patience sat at the table, watching with keen blue eyes. A warm fire blazed at the hearth, and the smell of baking apples filled the room. The next is difficult for me to think on, let alone write, and an icicle of fear still stabs at me. When Clara read our prayer into the room, baby Patience turned to the place setting next to her and smiled. A wide, inviting smile, as if looking at a dear friend. The temperature of the room dropped precipitously, and a cold wind nearly extinguished the fire. The aroma of apples transformed into the sickeningly sweet stench of lilies past their bloom. Clara and I sat frozen in our chairs for the briefest of moments before she had the presence of mind to perform a banishing ritual. The fire blazed back in anger, and Patience looked around, bewildered. I cannot say whether good or evil, Clara said, and I agreed. We were silent until Patience began to fuss. Clearly she has the gift, I observed, picking up my daughter and rocking her against me. Clara nodded. I will make her a strong protection charm, whatever the case. Patience Pittman, July 1st, 1916 The lady in blue, I gasped letting the journal fall to my lap. I am reading it aloud to Aunt Clara in the shade of a giant oak tree when this memory crashes over me. How could I have forgotten? In the night, I would awaken to find her standing over me, a silent shadow at my bedside. Other times, she would be waiting for me in the yard, beckoning me to follow. I never felt the cold my mother described, but I sensed the lady's presence the way one feels another's eyes on them from behind, as a tingling up the spine or an odd compulsion to turn around. At first, she seemed content to only observe me. In my childlike innocence, I invited her to play. Come, sit and have tea. A whisper of a smile would pass her lips, but she seemed unable to comply. Always I had the sense that she wanted something more. I picked up the journal 
and continue to read. The Journal of Addison Faith Pittman, Nay Williams, May 7, 1905 I write this by candlelight, after finally soothing patients to sleep. Samuel has stopped pacing and sits beside me with an old copy of the evening record on his lap. I believe he is merely staring at it, the paper crinkling lightly in his trembling hands. My hands are shaking as well, and the handwriting on this page looks curious to my own eyes. I cannot reflect on the day's events without my heart racing madly in my chest. The day dawned fine and bright, the warmth of the spring sun quickly melting the frosting dew that weighed on new leaves. As is our Saturday habit, Samuel worked in town during the morning hours and returned by mid-afternoon to tend to the chores around the house and enjoy an early supper. Whilst he repaired a loose board on the front porch, I rolled dough for a chicken pot pie. Patience played in the sitting room with her dolls, wooden blocks, and stuffed animals, chattering animatedly to her inanimate friends. Whether it was my women's intuition, or simply a mother's sense of things, I recognized the house to be unnaturally silent and went to investigate. Blocks and toys lay strewn about, but Patience was no longer there. I rushed upstairs to her bedroom, where she also spent hours entertaining herself. It, too, was vacant. All the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end as I raced down the stairs and out the back door. There, across the field, I saw Patience teetering on the edge of the well. My screams echoed through the yard. I lifted my skirts and ran toward her just as her feet slipped out from under her. I managed to capture the hem of her dress and with my body draped over the stone edge heard the fabric tearing. Her shrieks rivaled mine and I felt her little body slipping from my grasp. Suddenly, Samuel was at my side, reaching his long arms over the precipice and capturing one tiny wrist. He managed to haul her up over the edge, and the three of us tumbled to the ground, gasping and holding on to one another for dear life. By the time Samuel carried our sobbing daughter into the house, we had regained a measure of composure— he held her in his lap while I made tea and continued with my cooking. Patience was silent during dinner time, barely eating when normally her appetite is quite healthy, but neither of us had the heart to scold her. Later, when I tucked her into bed, I asked why she was playing near the well. Her answer chilled me to the bone. The lady in blue wanted to see my necklace. She was in the well. When I searched under the collar of her nightgown, the protection charm Clara had given to patients was gone. August 10th, 1905 Does the lady speak to you? 
Clara asked Patience earlier today, while the two sat peeling peaches at the kitchen table. I'd informed Clara immediately of the incident by the well. Both of us feel we must determine the intentions of the lady in question, or we may not be effective in our countermeasures. She whispers, Patience answered. What does she say? She tells me she is my friend, that she likes to play. Clara nodded, matter of fact. Neither of us wishes to frighten Patience. Anything else? She prodded gently. Patience smiled and licked peach juice from her sticky fingers. She says my hair is pretty. Oh, well, it certainly is, Clara agreed. But Patience, she continued, more somberly now, I don't think it's a good idea to play with the lady. Why not? Patience crinkled her little forehead with worry. I like her. Well, she doesn't belong here any more, and she may not understand the rules. For example, she wanted your necklace, but you were almost hurt trying to show her. She might not understand that little girls shouldn't play near wells. I could tell by her expression that Patience wasn't pleased with this new bit of information. I'm not sure how she even understood it in her child's mind. Patience, darling, mother was very worried when you nearly fell into that well, I said, taking a seat at her other side. Will you promise me not to speak to the lady any more? Reluctantly, Patience nodded. When she ran off to play, having grown tired of our adult talk, Clara and I could reach no conclusion as to the nature of this spirit and its intentions. That it is a spirit, we have no doubt, but anything more is only speculation on our part. Nonetheless, we performed the most powerful banishing ritual we know of. September 25th 1905. For several weeks it seemed as if the spirit had disappeared, that perhaps our ritual sent her restless soul to the afterlife permanently. But, of late, I fear this is not the case. This morning I heard Patience in her room speaking as if to another person, not one of her dolls or toys. Later, when she sat at the table for lunch, I noticed a locket around her neck. I might have missed it, tucked as it was under the folds of her collar, had the silver chain not caught the afternoon light streaming in from the kitchen window. Little one, I asked gently, where did you get the lovely locket? Patience bowed her head, reluctant to answer. May I see it? Slowly she removed it from her neck and handed it to me. I turned the smooth circular shape over in my hands and then opened the clasp. Two tiny daguerreotypes faced each other, one the likeness of a man and one that of a lovely young woman. Despite the age and faded quality of the prince, the woman's youth and beauty shone through. 
but there was something about her vague smile that caused me to shiver and snap the locket closed. On the back side of the surface, a faded engraving caught my eye. Squinting, I read the inscription. Elspeth Laurie, 1828. Where did you get this, Patience? I asked again, with more authority in my voice. Show me, please. Patience led me up the stairs into her bedroom and moved aside her dollhouse to reveal a loosened, splintered floorboard. Under here, Mama. However did you find this? I asked, although I'd already assumed the answer. Her bottom lip quivering, Patience whispered, The lady showed me. Rather than scold her for her disobedience, I scooped my daughter in my arms and held her. Mama is going to hold on to this locket for safekeeping. I felt her little body stiffen as if to argue, but then she sighed and nodded. Tonight, when Samuel returned from work and sat by the fire, I asked him from whom he had purchased this house. He looked at me strangely, but answered, It was an estate sale. I would need to check the documents, as it was a lawyer who signed on behalf of the family. Would you? I asked. He searched my eyes with his, but did not ask the question I am certain was on his mind. October 1st, 1905 Last evening, Patience awoke with a terrible rash, her fevered body tossing and turning. Samuel and I flew from our bed at the sound of her anxious cries. I cooled her with wet cloths while Samuel raced into town to fetch the doctor. When Dr. Hodges arrived and examined her, he could find no cause for the strange symptoms, which faded as quickly as they came on. Had Samuel not been there to witness the malady, I might have questioned the soundness of my own mind. The doctor prescribed a soothing tonic and a cool bath for patients, and a large pour of brandy for Samuel and me. October 15, 1905 Patience has been withdrawn and sullen these past few days, when I inquire, she merely stares at me blankly and turns her attention back to her dolls. The rash came on again two nights ago, but Samuel and I dared not summon the doctor. As before, it passed quickly, and Patience fell into a sound, untroubled sleep. October 18, 1905 here is another night that I sit by candlelight shaken to my core. The day started pleasantly enough. Patience and I went for a walk to gather apples, and she seemed quite content to fill her basket and sample the tart fruits along the way. When we arrived home, she disappeared to play. I put the apples into the barrel and forthwith began dinner preparations. The day was a blustery one, typical of autumn in New England. I shuttered the windows as the afternoon took on a chill and stood by the sink, peeling potatoes and chopping vegetables for the evening stew. Suddenly, 
a powerful wind blew through the kitchen, toppling a vase of greens and autumn berries off the table. Then, as if an invisible arm swept over the counter, clay jars filled with flour, sugar, and various herbs crashed to the ground. The locket, which I had hidden in a jar of sage, gleamed amidst the rubble. When I touched it, it was as if I had grabbed a hot coal. I shrieked, and the silver jewelry fell from my grasp. Whilst I plunged my seared hand into a bucket of water, Patience scampered into the room and snatched up the locket. Her face wore no childlike expression, but rather a sneer of cruel victory. I screamed for her to stop as she trampled barefooted over the shards of broken glass and pottery, but she hurried up the stairs, leaving small bloody footprints in her wake. Swallowing back my own terror and pain, I followed, but before I could reach her room, the door slammed shut. With my uninjured hand, I wrestled the doorknob. The lock held fast. I pounded on the heavy wood and shouted at Patience to open up. Receiving no response, I switched my attention to the lady and unleashed my full rage at her, threatening to send her straight into the pits of hell. Still cursing her, I flew down the stairs and out the door to retrieve an axe from my husband's woodshed. I stopped briefly back in the kitchen to wrap my hand in a cloth, then charged up the stairs once again. Swinging the axe straight and hard, I brought my full strength down on the brass knob. Once, twice, three times, and finally the apparatus fell apart, the door swaying out on its hinges and the house falling into absolute silence. There, huddled on her bed, sat Patience, holding her favorite doll and staring blankly out the window. I rushed to her, pulling her tight against me. Mama, she said in a tiny, bewildered voice. Oh, my little one, I cried, rocking her. When I finally came to my senses, I examined her feet with still shaking hands. Small cuts peppered the bottoms of both. I ran gentle fingers over the skin relieved that no glass pieces had become embedded. We'll need to clean and bandage these, I told her. She looked at me in confusion. Do you remember what happened? She shook her head no. Where is the lady's locket? I don't know, Mama. After I tended to her feet and tucked patience into my own bed, I scoured every inch of her bedroom until I found that godforsaken locket in the pocket of her best Sunday dress. Stay away from my daughter, you witch! I hissed, placing it in a tin of salt. This evening I have spoken with Samuel, and he agrees that Patience and I should take the holidays at my sister Mary's house. Patience Pittman July 1st, 1916
I remember that winter at Aunt Mary's, I tell Clara. I remember Mama, Aunt Mary, and my older cousins cooking the turkey for Thanksgiving. And I remember singing Christmas carols in the snow. I smile thinking about the lovely fur muffler my cousin Eleanor gave to me. I wore it inside and out for nearly the whole month of December. I pause, lost in the happy memory, until finally I ask the question that has been lurking in the back of my mind. Aunt Clara, what was happening to me? Clara sighs, touching her hand to my face. My dear, your mother and I believed the spirit was trying to possess you. I draw a sharp breath, shuddering despite the heat. It is as if a puzzle piece, long missing, has dropped into place. My mother did not speak about why we were away from home that winter, but I remember feeling carefree, unperturbed, and safe at my aunt's, things I no longer felt in my own home. Did my mother ever learn who the spirit was in life? I ask. Clara tilts her head. We learned some things, but families have secrets and some are quite difficult to shed light upon. We did come to know that the Laurie family owned your home. They had three daughters. Two were married with families of their own, but the youngest, it seems, died tragically at the age of 18. Elspeth. I say, the name rolls off my tongue, familiar even if I had not read it in my mother's journal. Elspeth, Clara repeats, how did she die? Well, here is where rumor and truth tangle. The Lorries were an old Boston family. Only a few of them reside here still. They're distant cousins of the family who owned the property but they guard their history carefully. Your mother and I learned what we did from the elder church ladies, who do enjoy a bit of gossip over tea. Clara leans forward and plucks a piece of dried grass from my hair, a tiny flush of color blooming on her cheeks. I wait for her to continue. It seems that Elspeth fell in love with an older gentleman. She clears her throat. <clears throat> a married gentleman, and when his wife learned of this affair, she sought to shame Elspeth entirely. There was talk that the wife accused the girl of bewitching her husband. The town turned on Elspeth viciously. Clara stops, pointing to the well. It is said Elspeth took her own life by throwing herself into that well. How awful! I am filled with compassion for this reckless girl pushed to such a desperate act. I felt for her, too, when I first heard the tragic tale. But remember, patience, a spirit after death is often greatly corrupted and barely resembles the person they were in life. Their desire for vengeance or longing for what has been lost, compels them to their actions. I recognize the truth in her words. There is another rumor, 
Clara says after a moment's pause, one even darker than the first. I hold my breath and wait. Finally, she continues. There are whispers that Elspeth had become pregnant, and rather than claim the child and disgrace his family, her lover threw her into the well. There are not many pages left in my mother's journal. I read to the end with great trepidation. The Journal of Addison Faith Pittman, Nay Williams, January 20th, 1906. We have returned, and Samuel is well pleased to see us. When I asked how things had been at home, he would not meet my eye. Strange, he said simply. I stayed mostly in town. The house is cold without you. I nodded my understanding. Clara and I will speak about what should be done here, I assured him. When I tucked Patience into her bed, she looked around the room warily and with some dread on her face. My sister Mary and I crafted her a potent charm to ward off the lady's spirit. It is no real solution, I know, but hopefully it will allow Clara and me time to prepare. Mary sent me home with an old tome of our mother's, ancient rituals carefully recorded on stiff paper. January 25, 1906 The preparations are made. Clara and I have meticulously reviewed every word of the summoning incantation and each step of the banishing spell. Our materials are gathered. I have drawn the partial circle on the wood floor in the parlor in front of the fireplace where there is space to complete it when necessary. The spirit has been quiet since our return, but I know she is here. I feel the whisper of her presence in the air and hear her faded voice as if she is calling from a great distance. Patience sleeps now, peaceful on the sofa. I wish she could have spent the evening in town with her father, but we will need her to help draw the spirit out. Fear sits in my belly like a cold stone. Patience Pittman, July 1st, 1916 I turn the page. But this is my mother's last entry. Allowing the book to close, I stare across the yard at the charred remains of my childhood home. Where now there is only ash and debris, I see flames. Where now there is only silence, I hear screams. The memory of that night returns in a rush, as complete as if the events had happened yesterday. I carefully play the details over in my mind, attempting to see things through my adult eyes instead of those of a six-year-old child. I wake, rubbing sleep from my eyes. My mother offers me a cup of hot tea, and we wait for Aunt Clara to arrive. I know we're planning something tonight, something that scares me. While I sip the warm liquid, 
my mother sets things out on the kitchen table. The sparkle of the lady's silver locket catches my eye. Patience, my mother says, crushing herbs with her mortar and pestle. I smell sage among the mix. Tonight, Aunt Clara and I are going to send the lady home. She isn't of this world any longer, and we must put her spirit to rest. I don't quite understand what this all means, but I nod. This is best for her, but she may become very angry with us. She may frighten you. My eyes widen, and the flicker of nervousness in my stomach flames into near panic. My mother touches my cheek and smiles gently. Don't worry, little one. Mama won't let anything happen to you. Aunt Clara arrives and hugs me. I have something for you, Patience. She places a small pouch on a leather cord around my neck and tucks it under my collar. This joins the cat's eye amulet I've been wearing since our return from Aunt Mary's. Added protection, Clara says to my mother. We move into the parlor in front of the fireplace and arrange ourselves in a semicircle just inside the incomplete circle my mother has drawn on the floor with salt and ash. It is near to midnight, my mother says. Let's begin the summoning. She drops the lady's locket into the center, and she and Clara begin to chant. The tiny hairs on my arms stand on end. Suddenly, the flame in the fireplace leaps. But despite the roaring blaze, the room becomes ice cold. Mama! I say in a tiny, terrified voice. My mother does not even glance my way. Instead, she continues with her chanting, her own voice growing bolder, stronger. Elspeth Laurie, show yourself, she commands. The air seems to shimmer, and out of this disturbance a form takes shape. I've seen her before, but she has always been like a shadow, a figure dancing in the corner of my vision, a voice whispering in the background. Now I stare at the entity I've been calling the Lady in Blue, Elspeth Laurie. Her figure still has a wispy quality to it, and I study her pale face and tangled black hair. Her blue dress clings to her, as if wet. My mother stoops to pick up the locket and holds it out, reflected firelight dancing off the smooth face. The lady's attention is immediately drawn to it. Be ready with the binding spell, my mother yells to Clara, then steps closer to the spirit, dangling the necklace from her fingers. Do you want this, Elspeth? The lady sneers at my mother and lunges for the necklace. Mother drops it back into the center of the circle, and Aunt Clara chants the ancient words. Partway through, she motions for us to step outside the ring. Just as my mother begins to close the circle with a sprinkling of salt and ash, 
the lady sees me. I can feel her attention fixate on me, and the intensity and desire in her countenance force me backward. I scramble away from her, tripping on the hem of my nightdress, stumbling onto the hard floor. Clara stops chanting and looks at my mother in alarm. Elspeth, my mother shouts, picking up the lock at once again. Look what I have. But the spirit will not be deterred. She advances toward me. A menacing grin contorts her features. With shaking hands, I reach under my collar and pull out the protection pouch. The lady stops and shrieks with rage, her voice an unnatural pitch. I feel the air squeeze out of my lungs. You are mine, she screams, pointing at me. Her talon-like fingers graze the skin of my forearm, thrown up in self-defense. A white-hot, blinding pain shoots up my arm, and I, too, scream. The lady snaps her teeth like a rabid dog, her face hovering over mine. But she can come no farther. Now my mother is there, her body in front of mine. She is not yours, Elspeth. The spirit's angry howl echoes through the room, and the fire suddenly rages in the hearth. Sparks fly out, burning tiny holes in the upholstery. One catches on a curtain, and the fine cloth erupts in flame. Patience, go to Clara, my mother commands, and I scurry to my aunt. I feel that the spirit's attention has shifted away from me, back toward the locket, and my mother who holds it. Mother walks slowly backward, drawing the spirit with her. Fire now engulfs both sets of curtains and licks at the ceiling. Addison! Clara's voice is panicked. Finish the circle around us, my mother orders. Clara hesitates for a moment, then grabs the tin of salt and pours out the remainder. The binding circle is complete, Clara says. Come out, Addison. But the spirit is on my mother now, forcing her to her knees. My mother seems to surrender. The locket falls to the ground and her arms drop to her sides. Addison, Clara shouts. I love you, daughter, my mother says, her gaze fixed on mine. And then there is no spirit, only my mother lifting herself from her knees. She wears an unrecognizable smile as one hand slowly caresses the other. Around us, flames leap across the ceiling, the room now a blazing furnace. I choke on the smoke that fills my lungs. Clara pulls me toward the door, her grip a vice on my arm. No! I scream. Mama! My mother moves closer, arms outstretched, but from behind her eyes, another soul looks out. When she reaches the edge of the circle, she stops and tumbles backward, struck by an unseen force. Fury blooms across her face, and she rushes to the edge once again.
Clara kicks open the door and pulls me, screaming and fighting, out into the frigid darkness. Through the smoke I see my mother's dress catch fire and her body become a flaming torch. Her screams pierce the night. My own screams fade into hoarse sobbing as Clara holds me against her and we watch the house burn. Clara holds me now, and silent tears streak down both our cheeks. It went so terribly wrong, she says. Mama, I whisper, I'm so sorry, Patience. It wasn't your fault, Aunt Clara, I answer, wiping a hand over my face. She sighs. Addie sacrificed herself to save you from that spirit, and I know she would do it again. I just miss her so. I miss her too, I say, and a gentle lilac-scented breeze caresses my cheek and is quickly gone. Patience Pittman, March 15, 1917 I have returned to the property alone one last time before construction on the new house begins. I pull my hood up against the biting wind and tuck my hands into woolen mittens. My feet crunch on the stiff, partially frozen grass. I wander through the debris, kicking loose pieces of stone and scorched wood with the toe of my boot. I search for the better part of the afternoon, but there is nothing here. Patience Pittman, September 20th, 1917 The house still smells of new wood and pine, although we moved into it over a month ago. Papa is installed in the downstairs bedroom, his tired legs unable to climb to the second floor. It is a lovely home. I made sure to have a generous front porch included as part of the design. Many a morning I sit in the swing, listening to the rustle of the leaves and the melody of birdsong. Today, a few of our closest neighbors dropped by for a formal housewarming. Clara, of course, helped me prepare. Before the guests arrived, she handed me a tiny package wrapped in parchment paper. When I opened it, my eyes filled, and I swept her into a hug. She had taken the small photograph of my parents, the one my mother managed to save in her journal, and framed it for me. The little portrait now sits on the mantel. Although I know my mother is gone from this place forever, I am comforted by her image, which over time has faded in my memory, no matter how hard I've tried to preserve it. When Clara comes into the kitchen to bid me good night, I fetch her cloak from the brass coat rack in the hall. As she shrugs into it, I notice a glint at her throat, from where, between the buttons of her dress, a silver locket peeks out.
That was Tabitha Lord's Lady in Blue, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon the darkness with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.